on the Comfort Monk podcast, we've got Frank Elaine from the band Finn, aka The Watcher. All right, so this is a London-based black metal band. Um, Eddie's doing his best to turn me into a black metal head. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to working on Comfort Monk, I would argue that maybe I didn't really know the distinction between black metal and death metal and all this. I'm still kind of ironing out the kinks and that knowledge, but... uh, uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of moving parts to that to that world of music for sure. Um, yeah, you can you can get bogged down by uh, you know genre descriptions and stuff like that. Um, but it's sort of like uh, the famous pornography quote: "I can't describe, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it." Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, Finn. Uh, Finn's a a black metal band. I think most people would agree on that. Um, but they've got you know. A lot of kind of shoegaze influences. They've got some progressive rock influences. Um, they have a mixture of clean and uh, non-clean vocals. Um, they're just real interesting, real kind of big and into the ambient soundscape kind of thing. Are they at all in the same world as Don Raid? They're in the same world in that they have some of the same kind of like forefathers of their band. Um, they sound very different. Well, I mean, Don it's Ray definitely ethereal. has that, that you know, orchestral stuff going on that I don't hear as much in, in what's going on with Finn. But. For sure. Yeah, the instrumentation's different. But Finn is, you know, the, the Finns in England are just kind of this, this strangely sort of uh, desolate areas. You know, you think... Oh, cool. As Americans, I think we tend to think of England as, you know, land of rolling prairies and fields and stuff like that. And the Finns are kind of the opposite. So uh, it seems like their atmosphere um, is trying to channel that kind of specific aspect of the English countryside. He said he, he grew up there. It's sort of a isolated place. You know, it's certainly not London, for instance. Right. Um and I think they do a really good job of channeling that kind of like coldness and sereneness and uh, you know all all of that that all of the good and bad that comes with that kind of landscape. Uh, I think they do a good job of channeling into the the music. And then the the lyrics is actually what we we talked the most about. Their newest album, The Deadlight, is kind of thematically. It's not a concept album, but thematically, a lot of it is arranged around. Um, you know, kind of space, dead light being light that we can see from stars that don't exist anymore. Um, and that's kind of a, a prevailing, you know, theme on the album. And we talked about that a lot. That's neat, man. Well, I'm excited to check out more of their stuff. Um, I guess we'll jump to the interview um, and let you guys hear it. Thank you guys for tuning in. This is the Comfort Monk Podcast. Hope you all enjoy it. And if you like it, uh, make sure to subscribe and review us if you have a chance. Yeah, that means a lot to us. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Enjoy. Excellent. I'm comfortable. I've got a glass of whiskey in my hand, so I'm, I'm ready to talk. So. Awesome. I've got a lager in mine, so. <laughs>
Yeah, well, that's it. We're, we're, we're all doing what we can to medicate our way through the lockdown phase. So, uh, Certainly the cheapest way to do it. <laughs> well, not, I mean, this is, yeah, this, this, is, this is the dregs of a fairly expensive bottle, actually. But it's, oh, okay. It's, 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 it's nearly over, so I need, to, I need to come to terms with it. I've got quite a lot of bottles on the go at the moment, and they're all, they're all in their last knockings. I need, to, I need to learn to let go. I need to, uh, I need to finish a few off and wave goodbye. So, uh, yeah, make a start on that. What do you typically go for? Um, this is a Lagavulin um, cask strength, twelve year old. I could give him as a gift actually a few years ago. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it is delicious. It has to be said. So I'm a, um, fan of, I'm a big fan of those uh, peaty scotches. It, yeah, it's 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 certainly in that in that space and then some. So yeah, no, it's it's a, they're they're great. I actually went to um, went to Isla a couple of years ago where sort of Lagavulin and Ardbeg and um, Lafroiga based it's like it was a it was a proper pilgrimage i've been meaning to go there for years and years and years and we finally did it and um yeah it was it was it was quite quite spiritual no pun intended <laughs> it's one of those things where it was like it felt like a bit of a felt like a pilgrimage you know yeah i i have a friend who's described uh you know brewers and distillers and stuff as kind of like the closest thing we have to alchemy you know in the modern day like somebody makes a yeah. potion for you that makes you feel a certain way. That's kind of magical. Absolutely. It's, it, it's a transcendental experience in some respect. You, know, you go to some of these distilleries and they've got the pagoda towers. They almost look like church spires. You know, we turned up to the Ardbeg distillery and my, my, my girlfriend, she was like, this is like, a, this is like going to a monastery. And I'm like, it really is. You've got these big whitewashed buildings. Everyone's walking around in, in hushed reverence and <laughs> waiting to, uh, waiting to engage with the spirits. So uh, yeah, it's uh, great stuff. But, that's um, awesome yeah, yeah. It's, it's beautiful country too so i'm sure that doesn't yeah, hurt yeah. no of course well yeah i mean isla is it's it's tiny you know it's it's an island it's got what three and a half thousand people who live there and eight distilleries you know <laughs> it's it's, it's surprising you, you prepare yourself for it to be quite sort of quite sort of sparse and quite empty and really sort of quite really really quiet but it still kind of takes you back a bit you're like some, some, some of these places are world renowned distillery surely there'll, there'll be some song and dance it'll, it'll have been touristified absolutely not it was properly local incredibly quiet really kind of like oh my word this really is this is this is authenticity right here you know and it's it's great it's great to engage with something authentic you know in a in a world that sort of struggles with that sometimes i think yeah that's that's awesome i've been uh working on a bottle of uh Lefroig tin myself great stuff yeah yeah fantastic yeah it's uh yeah it's good and it's and it's it is there's an atmosphere to it as well i think you know and, and it, it, at the risk of sounding slightly corny it conjures up the landscape in your mind you know it conjures up the area you know and, and it's it, it's quite evocative in that in, in that respect you know it's, i know that sounds like the the ravings of a total piss artist but it's, no, it's, no, I, think it's I, I know exactly what you mean um it, you know that it's interesting talking about landscape um but one of the things you know i want to talk about with you is kind of landscapes uh you know it seems to me the way a lot of you know black metal especially atmospheric black metal gets talked about is in terms of kind of the the landscape that it sets for you know the, the yeah. listener um but finn kind of reverses that and it kind of starts out with the landscape as an inspiration why does the natural world present such a rich source of inspiration for you know black metal it's, it's an interesting one isn't it I, I think to be honest i think it's the romanticism you know i think a lot of people talk about particularly sort of second wave 
the, the second wave Norwegian black metal artists as being sort of, you know, it's it, 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 it sort of musical romanticism. You think a lot of sort of classical artists used to paint, you know, incredibly evocative landscapes, Constable and Turner and all those kind of guys. And, and I think it's a sort of similar thing. It's that sort of, it's, it's romanticism and on a whiff of escapism. It's, it's, it's about sort of painting, about conjuring something within the observer or the listener to really sort of take them, take them with you and communicate and, and, and stir something within them. You know, you're trying to bring, you're trying to tap into something which is enable someone to sort of float free of, of the sort of material and the sort of, and, and the bland and the normal and get engaged with something. It's, I mean, I suppose that there's potentially even a whiff of idealism that that's creeps into that as well. You know, the way that these 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 landscapes presented in an artistic way. But I, I think it's important for me. It's just it's about connection. You know, I think you know, landscape can be quite symbolic and it can stir quite sort of deep seated feelings within, within an individual. You know, and and it, it works on a number of levels. We obviously you look at a beautiful picturesque landscape or a rolling valley or sort of a mountain range, and it hits you with an immediacy. Which is like this is incredible. We'll get the space, but I think there's it also stirs something quite primal. And I don't know whether it's tapping into our primordial selves from tens of thousands of years ago, but that sense of that sense of freedom or that sense of opportunity, you know, that sense of verdantness. You know, I suppose our ancestors have looked at rolling hills and mountains and seen places places to hunt food or places to to to, to turn into shelter. And I, and I wonder whether it taps into that primordial drive to immerse oneself in that landscape as well, which really gives it that sort of enticing drive but it is it's an interesting question um because i I, you know you look at you know i think it really gained traction in the extreme metal scene with the sort of you know what i think i think at the time i remember reading somewhere in terrorizer magazine they used to describe it as sort of weather reports black metal you know a lot of (laughs) bands talking about mountains and the snowscapes and the blizzards but they were talking about stuff that was relevant for them and they were trying to change it that's that's what they found inspiring that's what that's what gave them that sort of existential thrill to create and to communicate and a similar thing for us in fen you know we we grew up in a an area that was very bleak it was very flat huge skies you know let, just just lengthy fields just drift off to the horizon and sort of and it had its own unique atmosphere and it kind of represented a certain feeling you know it represented that sense it was almost it sounds like a paradox but enticing bleakness you know it's like yeah there was something mysterious and engaging just out of reach about it and i think that's what we wanted to sort of channel that feeling in our music certainly because that's what made sense to us yeah that 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 makes a whole lot of sense to me too um you know i'm I'm from the south in the united states uh and there's a, a genre they call swamp metal and it's basically this yeah. real sludgy kind of slow uh you know black sabbathy kind of thing and it's all inspired by you know like Louisiana and Mississippi and Florida swamps. Absolutely makes sense. There's no point trying to sort of fake, fake, you know, your, your, your sort of your, um, your influences and your inspirations in that sense, you know, and, and it's, yeah, if that's part of your natural environment and it's, it's, it's going to, it's going to have, it's going to have, you know, it's going to have flown through you in some way. And I think, I think it, it just, you know, it's important. Again, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that element of authenticity. If that's, if that's the region you're in and that's the, the overriding sort of cultural influence, it's probably, you've probably been steeped into it subconsciously, then it makes sense to, to channel that. And I think, you know, that's why people can smell you know, inauthenticity, you know, they can sense it, you know, bands that, you know, you, you'd have, you know, it was why it's a bit, bit, bit silly when you had, you know, you'd have bands from England and Suffolk singing about sort of ancient Norwegian forests and things like that. It's like, oh, come on, this is, this is, you know, you're, this, you know, you're faking this now. This isn't, this isn't something, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're copying and pasting that from someone else and claiming it as your own. So I think, you know, I think that that definitely ties into that, um, 
concept of authenticity and that's something you know for us in fen you know we you know the landscapes that meant something to us and the landscapes that for us acted as metaphors to to ourselves and our own thoughts and our own our own feelings were you know were, were those landscapes and, you know and that's that's why it was appropriate for us to talk about that there was no point in us rabbiting on about deep dark forests and ancient lakes and snow-capped peaks you, you don't have any of those in east anglia you just got sort of bleak bogland and kind of sort of strange strange spindly patches of trees you know so one thing i i noticed about finn you know right away um i think when i was listening to winter uh a few years ago um is, is kind of you know the, the lyricism is really striking um and it's you know clearly not an afterthought i was wondering if there were any particular authors or anything like that uh or or books or you know whatever that uh kind of influences you know the the lyrical content of it and the style especially um, i mean not not directly i'm not on i'm not on someone who writes lyrics with, with a specific author in mind and i'm not someone who sort of really directly references literature in that in that sense myself i mean you know, I'm actually, you know, I don't, I don't read as much as I should. That's a bit of a sad confession to make. And, you know, and I, I tend to sort of immerse myself in sort of fantasy escapism. You know, it, it, it's just, just something to read when I'm on the train into work, something like that. So authors like, you know, Tolkien, obviously, David Gemmell, you know, those kind of authors, Stephen Erickson. It's my sort of day-to-day reading. But I do, when I've got the mental energy, do dip into quite a lot of sort of metaphysical existential philosophy. So, you know, I've spent time reading works by David Hume. Um, Bertrand Russell, you know, Wittgenstein, um, Immanuel Kant, Sartre, that sort of stuff. I can't claim to understand everything that's in there, but when I'm when I'm when I'm feeling on form, then I will dip into that sort of stuff. And I think that shapes some of the thinking that then channels itself through into the lyrics. Um, and in terms of way, ways of viewing things and ways of sort of expressing stuff in a slightly more, you know. It, it, it's trying to get, you know, what we're trying to do is get, through, you know, it's trying to get through to truths and ways of expression that aren't too, you know, I don't want to do stuff that's too obvious. I don't want to be, I don't want to be just telling a story or telling someone how to think or telling someone what to think. I, I want there to be an element of abstraction uh, and, and people sort of work a little bit with the words that are there. You know, I, I like to use quite a lot of metaphor and imagery to sort of bring about feeling because I think it's important for people also to draw their, an element of their own meaning from the lyrics as well. I think it's, you know, I want to keep people on their toes and I want them to explore through it as much as I want them exploring through the music and working through that journey with us. Same thing kind of applies to the lyrics. It's, it's digging through it and the feelings that certain imagery and metaphors generates within someone who's reading them. And it's getting to that end point and it, and it becomes their own in that sense. It becomes their own interpretation there and, and it almost becomes their own expression by taking what they perceive to be the meaning out of those lyrics. I mean, obviously I have meanings and I have intentions, but a lot of, there is also a, there's an element of abstraction there as well, but there no there aren't any direct authors that I would say you know you know I'm I'm, I'm aspiring to or or directly influenced by a lot of, a lot of the lyrics I write kind of just sort of they come out very quickly a lot of the time I write tend to write in bursts you know I won't write anything for months and then suddenly feel something will happen and I'll just hit this wave of kind of like I've got to get some words down on paper now I've had a, a notion I've had an idea I've had a sensation on the way home from work or something's hit me in the middle of the night and it needs to it needs to come out now and a lot of stuff will flow in a fairly short space of time. And then I'll sort of go back and refine it and revise it and sort of shape it into something a little more coherent. Yeah. I, I, I like that kind of method of writing when you're ready, writing when you, you feel inspired by something. 
I think it's funny you mentioned uh, Emmanuel Kant because uh, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, going back and listening to, um, the, you know, the Deadlight, the new record, uh, that song uh, Labyrinthine Echoes really struck me yeah. as, uh, as, you know, Kantian. You know, he's, he said, like, one of the main struggles was the world as it is versus the world as I see it. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing yeah. there. But I, I, to me, again, you, you said a lot of these are kind of, you know, up to the, up to the listener, but to me, that song is kind of about like your failures of sense to be able to, you know, describe what's actually going ar- on around you. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, Kant, Kant sort of deal, digs very deeply into that sort of synthetic knowledge and a priori knowledge. And I'm, I'm not necessarily agree with some of his, some of his premises, but what I will say is, yeah, certainly that. There's a, there's that sense of frustration in his writing between you know you know your perception sort of essentially is coloring what the, what the reality actually is and it's and this is something that, that threads through a lot of you know existential philosophy is what is truth what is reality versus the sort of the filter through which we perceive it because our only truths can truth can only manifest on our own brains and obviously we're utterly limited by the mechanisms of our perception we're absolutely you know and there's an almost a reductivism there's almost a sense of you know, we, we, a, 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 fidel, there's a fidelity barrier. We can't get any more precise with what we perceive. And, and, and this is it. And I think Labyrinthine Echoes, it touches on that. It t- I mean, there's a premise, there's something behind it about, yeah, the betrayal of you know, one sense is betraying oneself. And I think that's also yeah. about, you know, there, there's, 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 that's certainly a, a big piece of that. And it's that realisation that we, what, what we perceive is not, is not, the reality of things but we we know no better we can do no better that what you know we we can wish for no better because we're absolutely hamstrung by the limitations of our own our own senses and our own brains and it is it is that sort of that existential scream of anguish of acknowledging that and it's like you know and and and, and that, yeah that, that can create a downward spiral of despair we'll, 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 is is this we, we know what we we you know they're and that's not saying I'm not saying I necessarily believe in it but it's one viewpoint is that you know that realization that we know what we're seeing isn't necessarily the truth or the be all and the end all of reality. But what can we do about it? To quote you from that song, you said, uh, what we face with our senses is the purest illusion transmissions from a realm of the unknowable. So yeah. that kind of even opens up the, the concept of, you know, even if we had better ways to sense these things, maybe the truths behind it, you know, are, you know, beyond us still. Yeah. Well, this is it. If we talk about this, you know, you know, humanity since, since the, the dawn of time as, 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 Sort of ascribed magic and, and, and cosmic wonder and th- things that are unexplained and unknown always, you know, are, are put in the realms of the fantastical. And then, as our knowledge base expands, and as our as our, as our scientific understanding and our awareness and our sort of, you know, our, you know our, it, it, we we start to be able to explain, and understand. But there there will be limits, and we may we may be we may be millennia, we may be tens, hundreds of millennia behind a true understanding of the nature of our universe. We're learning things all the time about what's. What's ha- what, you know, about the reality of the, the the universe or the multiverse, even if you want to go down that road of, of, that we live in, and um, you know, and this and this is it. You know, I, I don't see, I don't, you know, I don't purport to have the answer to any of these questions at all. But it's stuff that you know certainly keeps awake a number of philosophers at night, and 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 weirdly, those branches where science and philosophy intersect, you know, the, the, the sort of the at the sort of the edges of some branches of you know, philosophical physics, they start, you know, and you, you start to see these sort of patterns emerging where there's an, there's an alignment between those two things. There's more of an overlap there than people might think. And, um, 
yeah and, and 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 it's just it's and it's an interesting thought to ponder it almost it almost takes us to a lovecraftian viewpoint and there's certainly i've 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 sort of cheekily i suppose if you want to talk about an author i've cheekily sort of peppered in some sort of lovecraftian inferences throughout because obviously the deadlight's dealing with a lot of it is musing on you know cosmic phenomena and and, and, and deep space as, as part of the part of the backdrop to that mm. um that that lovecraftian you know cosmic malice lurking behind the cracks of reality you know that, that that that's always something that's quite um i find quite enticing and quite sort of quite an, quite an intriguing you know notion you know not you know it's not that it's it's necessarily embedded in reality but again that speaks of that really is a way of somebody perhaps giving voice to their fears of the unknowable and the fears of you know the, the universe is so vast it's almost impossible for us to comprehend and i think i wonder why you know you almost think whether lovecraft went down the road he did to try and give it some sort of an element of structure to it just because the actual real nature of it was perhaps even worse than what he was sketching out which is just this almost infinite frozen void of utter emptiness yeah it, it definitely with you know the the kind of the theme of dead light uh there's definitely that that lovecraftian unknowable about it um you know because when you you know if, if dead light is the light from dead stars there's so much you know going along with that it, there's energy that you can't see it's radiation there's you know radio waves there's ultraviolet light um you know all those things That's that it. exist yep. outside you know they they're they exist in the physical world but we can't see them exactly before we even get into dark matter and gravitational waves and things like that i mean geez it's it's a uh, i mean it i mean i i i, I yeah i had to stop sort of letting the inner geek run wild on that one a little to be perfectly honest i mean it's a uh, you know i you know it's one of those things i i, I did I did study physics at university for a bit, so I sort of that 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 sort of opened that box slightly. But I was I wasn't a particularly uh, focused student, I have to be honest. So, uh, I don't think many people are. Well, I mean, if you come from the Fens, you know, where there's you know there's just you, your family, a few people, and this you know just a, a landscape of sheer emptiness surrounding you, and then you get dropped into the middle of London with a, with a student loan check in your pocket you know the, the the chances are you're probably going to end up being a little distracted for a while and um yeah such such was the case so uh yeah i didn't exactly excel in academia but um you know i had some life experiences and you know, managed to get immersed in the you know the, the, the extreme metal scene and start making sort of making contacts that way and, and sort of learning learning my craft in, 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 a, in a way that was you know really really useful you know you know a very very different from just a guy a 16 year old in his bedroom with a drum machine it was a you know, some real world experience and I think those kind of those local scenes are quite important in that sense you know musicians bouncing ideas off each other everyone you know using you know being, being inspired by and aspiring to the people that are around them you know you get a lot of energy in those kind of localized environments and some really good stuff emerges from it sometimes yeah definitely uh you know, you mentioned being a 16 year old with a drum machine. Um, when you were that, you know, that, that person, were you, do, were you interested in metal and stuff like that? Or was that more something that you got into later in life? No, I mean, I, we sort of, I mean, so I, yeah, me and my brother got into metal when I was probably about 13, 14, um, started getting into hard rock, sort of started getting into white snake, um, and then, and then very very quickly you know plunged deep very quickly so in the space of a year and a half two years it was went from this to sort of white snake and alice cooper and poison and bands like that straight into you know cannibal corpse 
Cradle of Filth, you know, Emperor, Dark Funeral. Yeah, it was it was it was a, a swift, deep descent because you're like a sponge at that age, and everything is new and exciting. And you know, you've got to bear again. Bear in mind, this is pre-internet. You know, in the middle of nowhere, mid nineties. You know, this no one else. You've never seen anything like it. It's, it's. I know a lot of the older gits like me go on about it, but it really when when the extreme metal scene was burgeoning and reached its tendrils out to the more obscure, remote areas, it was just. You've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it was absolutely mind-shattering of how kind of extreme and exciting and different and enticing it was. It was, you know, it, it was dangerous. Not dangerous in a kind of oh, I might get hurt, but just dangerous in the sense that this is pushing at the boundaries of kind of what's acceptable. And yeah, you know, to a teenager, that's hugely exciting. So um, yeah, by the age of about fifteen, sixteen, we were. I was. I was in deep. But obviously knew very, very few people. You know, there's no scene where I live. Me and my I used to bully my brother into playing playing black metal with me. <laughs> and still have, as I say, you know, he's he's been in he's been in the band since inception. So he's uh it's, it's obviously worked because he got into it. Um and then just a couple of school friends who listened to it as well, and that was it. You know. So again, you know, you, you build your own idiosyncratic view of it when you're that age and you build your own understanding how it is and then coming to london and going to underground shows is just it was a, just another level another eye-opening level it's like there's hundreds of people here listening to this music that i was just in my bedroom i had no idea if anyone else even in the country was really listening to it and then you know i, I read magazines but god knows how many people were buying those and then suddenly you're at a mayhem gig and there's 600 people and it's like jesus this is this is something that's really vital and it's really happening so uh, yeah those it was it was a swift descent, you know, three or four years went, you know, from sort of first tentative steps into hard rock to full blown corpse paint bullet belt man, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you. You mentioned uh, the magazines. I was going to ask, you know, how do, how do you discover bands, you know, like Cradle Filth and Mayhem and Campbell Corpse and stuff like that? I mean, yeah. it was. It was it was it was through magazines. I mean, I got my, my father introduced me to sort of hard rock stuff. I got hit thirteen, and I think he was like thirteen, fourteen. He was like, right, you're going to start getting because he was he was a sort of secret closet rocker that you know I don't know he, he sort of kept it fairly quiet. But then I hit my hit my teenagers. And he's like, right, right, let's get you a guitar and let's let's sort this out. Let's get you sorted out, my son. And yeah, I, I really I sort of really embraced it at that point. Um, and I think it just started. It was from buying. I think I bought a, a copy of Metal Hammer. It had white snake on the cover and i thought oh, let's read about this so i didn't know anything about them you know I, I couldn't just wikipedia them i had some cds i didn't know anything i didn't know i knew the names of the people in the band and the names of the songs and the lyrics that's basically it so i was like okay let's see what this guy's got to say see what he looks like i didn't even have any photographs of him in the album sleeve um and then it sort of snowballed from there so you picked up a copy of metal hammer and they were reviewing they had some extreme metal in there so i started reading about bands like cradle of filth and a bitch i was like what is this these guys this is ridiculous and then you know, they'd have cover mount CDs with bits and pieces on, and it just was became a it sort of escalated from that point. And you listen to this, and I'd borrow some stuff from friends. You know, Paradise Lost, I think, was a band I got into quite early. I remember reading an interview of them and thinking they sounded quite interesting. Somebody at school had um, had a copy of Icon, and I borrowed that, and I was like, this is amazing. You know, this is really it's dark, it's heavy. It was again, everything was was new and different at that point, and it's so easy to be jaded now. It's so easy to just spend an evening scooping through YouTube and just saturating your brain with stuff and nothing becomes refreshing. And the, the trend cycle gets shorter and shorter. Everyone's chasing the new trend. Bands are out of date after six months now. But, you know, back then, pre-internet, just in the, you know, very few people to connect with. You know, you gave bands a big chance and, and stuff, everything you, 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 you tasted was 
exciting and, and vibrant and, and, and relevant. So yeah, that was that was a attempt for me, and I think it's a it's a similar trajectory for a lot of people around that time. That sort of early mid nineties time was 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 a big movement for extreme metal in general. I think. Yeah, I I know what you mean. You know, there's something to be said for having a CD and having the time, you know, to listen to it a hundred times or, you know, whatever, when you're not just, you know, completely overloaded with all of this, you know, new music and stuff to listen to, you know, Spotify and YouTube and stuff like that kind of, you know, there's, there's so much you can listen to that you're probably not gonna be able to really focus on anything. I yeah, it, and it and it feeds into what I worries me is the sort of you know it's the sort of phone the scrolling on the phone attention span you know it's hampered generation you know it's it's you know you you know it's like Instagram you know you can't put a video up there that's more than a minute and people say you know if your post doesn't grab someone's attention within six seconds forget it and I'm like when did our attention spans get reduced to six seconds when have we cultivated a society where that is something that is you know, and yeah, you know, maybe you, you can't fight progress. And again, I sound like a bit of a probably sound like a bit of an old stick in the mud. But it's just you know, as I say, back in those days, you buy an album and you would dive deep into it. You know, part of, part of it was helped by the fact you were skint and you could afford one album a month, so you'd buy that and that. You went through that with a fine tooth comb. But but there is there is information overloading. You know, I applaud the convenience of something like YouTube and, and, and Spotify to an extent, although their business model sucks. But um. Yeah, and it's it's great, and I I use it. You know, I'm not going to lie; I'll ch- I'll check something out. But I do worry that you know stuff gets lost in lost in the churn, you know. And and and, and I do think it, there is really something to be said for just sitting down. I mean, I've, I'm I'm big on vinyl. I, I I any any album I really want to get into, I'll get it on vinyl. And you just got yeah, and it, it time yeah, time is of course um, at a premium. Well, actually not, not at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, and then this is, I mean, I suppose, you know, the situation that like we're in at the moment is a great opportunity for people to start really digging out their vinyls, sit down with the sleeve, read through the lyrics and absolutely immerse and embrace the art. Don't just go for one minute chunks as you skip through Spotify playlists, you know, but, but I've always been interested in that. If I, you know, time is precious you know, in between work, rehearsing, socializing, doing all sorts of creative things. But I always like to try and put a lot aside some time to sit down with some albums and, Get the get the, the artwork out and really just let it sink in. Let it let it let it seep in. You know, because I think that's what the artist intended. So much goes into making a record. You know, you know, and, I, and being on the other side of the fence, I fully appreciate that. But you know, making a decent sounding record is a lot of effort and a lot of work. And if you're gonna if you support a band and you invest in that, you've got to you've got to give it the time of day. You've got to give it an opportunity to engage with you in the way that the artists have engaged with that recording in an effort to communicate it to you you know give, give it that time give it that chance i i know finn has some pretty uh some pretty crazy you know uh physical packaging what with you know wooden box releases and stuff like that but there's something nice about a, a physical release and being able to check out the artwork and all that i was wondering do y'all, uh, a lot of your artwork seems to have some kind of common threads uh, going through it. Do you work with the same artist um, for, for your packaging for all your records? I mean, most of our artwork is done by our bass player. Um, oh, awesome. He does, he does, I mean, he does virtually all of the artwork. Um, for some of the limited releases, we've used, we, we've worked with some other, other guys. So we did a, we did, um, we released our Stone and Sea EP on Eisenwald um, last year 
And we got our, a friend of ours called Alistair to do the cover for that because he does really cool sort of pencil pointillism work. And we actually engaged him again to do the plates in the limited edition um, art book version of the, the Deadlight. So we, um, so he did, he did some of the artwork there. And I think um, some of the stuff we did on Code 66, I think for the winter vinyl, they got one of the, got another guy to do the cover of, of that. But pretty much everything else we've released, our base player's done all the artwork for that, which is great because obviously we we interact very closely. So quite early on in the out as, as the album's taking shape, once we've got a few songs together, once we've got song titles and lyrics starting to generate, we'll have a central theme, we'll have a central concept. So we can start engaging quite early on what we want the album to look like, what the atmosphere is going to be, general idea for the album cover. So that almost is generated in tandem. And we've got that down to a pretty good sort of working relationship now that, that we've got that we've got a good methodology that works on that last couple of albums in particular the album cover has come together pretty early on in the process and hasn't changed fundamentally because once you've got your con you know all of our albums have a central thread and a central concept so once you've got that nailed that cover can then start becoming defined and actually it becomes an upwardly upwardly self-reinforcing spiral so you've got your album artwork and actually that inspires it's okay now we know we start to get some imagery here and that's adding its own atmosphere. So you start, it inspires you to write a little bit more and it steers the writing down a certain direction. And suddenly all the threads of what goes into making an album come together. It starts bringing ideas and sensations in your brain. And say, oh, we, we like it sound a bit like this. You know, early on, we had the image of the deadlight coming together. And I was like, right, okay, we want this one. I think this album needs to sound a bit colder, a bit sort of sharper, a bit more glacial. And, and, and you just start to throw around that sort of, that sort of creative dialogue and almost sort of strategizing, if you will, and yeah, it's 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 helpful. So yeah, we we've got that down to down to. I'm, I'm not going to say a fine art. That sounds a little bit too self-aggrandizing. But yeah, I think we 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 we've got that down to a pretty efficient way of working now. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. I I I didn't know that your your bass player did that. Um, and actually, you answered another thing I was wondering is I I realized that uh, Winter had two different covers, and I was wondering about that too. So uh you, you answered that question um and, yeah i mean we we, we, we always do different co- we, we generally on code 666 we generally did different covers for the vinyls um and the, as i say our base both done all of them apart from the winter one i think they got what they had an artist in mind they want to do an interpretation of the, the main cover and we're happy to do that and i think he did a really good job it's great mm-hmm. and you, you also mentioned uh spirals in you know sort of another context but um I was wondering the in the Finn logo, the spiral. Uh, what's what's the kind of uh, you know imagery? What's the meaning behind that? <laughs> I mean, we we get asked that a lot, and I always sidestep oh, that sorry. question because I didn't I, I didn't design. No, no, it's fine. It's it's an absolutely fair question. But our, our game basis put that one together, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to say it's it's based on some ancient carving that was found in some Neolithic caves in the in the wilds of the lake district. But really, it was just something that looked quite cool obviously spiral motifs have been around in you know civilized culture for since since the dawn of civilization itself and it can have many meanings and many interpretations um but from yeah i, I wouldn't i'm not going to say that it has a specific relevant meaning to us but obviously it speaks of mystery it speaks of you know times long gone it speaks of you know metaphysical you know considerations and again it's one for each observer to take away what they what they want to derive from that is, is, is how i'd diplomatically put that yeah for sure uh it it reminds me personally of um 
Uzumaki, which is a, a, a Japanese horror movie about uh, this town that its inhabitants slowly start becoming obsessed with spirals like found in nature and stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds cool. So, so you have to you have to message me the title of that. That sounds like something that might be worth checking out. Actually, I, yeah. I, I like it a lot. It's it's very uh, Lovecraftian, actually. Oh, that sounds excellent. That sounds right in my wheelhouse. So uh, yeah, well, bring me bring me the details of that, and I'll, I'll check that out for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it, it is a logo that stands out. I, I, you know, not wanting to again, not wanting to blow our own trumpet. You know, and it's it does it does cause headaches for gig gig promoters because it's kind of long and vertical rather than long and, and horizontal like most logos mm-hmm. it, it, you know some big promoters because because obviously they try and squash it down so it's the same height as like another long logo and obviously just it just looks really small and weird so it's it, it, you know we kind of it, it, we've made made a rod for our own back a little bit with that one because it's like you know sometimes our logo can look really small on a gig poster because they don't want it yeah but you know we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll take it i'll take that yeah 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 what can you do at that point oh yeah we, we've had it for 15 years now so i suppose there's not really much we can do about it so. yeah so uh i want i want to talk a little bit um about uh you know we talked some about the some of the themes on deadlight but uh the central you know the the concept of deadlight in the album uh it, it seems like you treat it in several different ways you know as the album kind of progresses and as you know the the arc of it kind of unfolds um mm. Uh, so I, I I wrote down some examples. Um, you know, you talk about in Deadlight, the the song, the Deadlight Part One, that it's you know kind of like energy shooting. You say carrying the stories of countless conflagrations of untold worlds, and then in Nebula, uh, you kind of describe it in organic ways. Uh, you use the words like blooming and fauna, and then basically by the end of the record, uh, Breath of Void. Uh, when you're talking about that same universe, you say it's crushing the meaning from the material, uh, which is, you know, kind of a removal of that, you know, organicness and that, you know, ability to tell stories and to transfer energy and stuff like that. Um, I was wondering what's kind of the, the arc of your, your, uh, your thinking about Deadlight. When, so when I said to you I wasn't directly inspired by any authors, I slightly lied <laughs> because where where a lot of it sprung from, um, I remember I, I had an encyclopedia of, of sci-fi short stories many, many years ago. Um, and there was a story in there about um, it was set. It was it was about the sort of um, it was around the nativity and they were and it was like the and it was it was based. I, I don't know the exact details of it. It was like the sort of. The, the the shepherds or the, the the pilgrims in the nativity looking at the north star or the star of Bethlehem to guide them and it was like and it's based on that but that what the actual that star was was a was actually a star going nova you know millions of light years away and it was basically wiping out an entire like a civilized solar system if you will so you know whole you know planets being scoured and you know whole whole, whole species being ex, you know exterminated in the blink of an eye and I thought it was quite a powerful concept this idea that something that you know millions of millions of you know millions of billions of kilometers away was being perceived as a distance something quite beautiful actually was a raging force of absolute unimaginable destruction and obviously it could be perceived obviously you know there's there's quanta of of um photons coming down and and, and reaching people and i thought that was quite some there's something quite sort of profound about that you know you've got this sort of message these messages from across you know deep distant time and space huge voids that are that are that are essentially are carrying stories, whether we're interpreting them the right way or not. But you know, it's you know that is 
that's that could, that could be a species death scream. It's essentially traveling across the void to strike to strike the the observers uh, at this end here. And so that, that was a sort of that acted as a springboard for starting to look at how cosmic phenomena and cosmic sort of sort of considerations have kind of, sort of shaped a lot of mankind's thinking. You, know, you look at a lot of you, know, you look at a lot of ancient structures. You, we think about Stonehenge is often cited to be some sort of astrological, astrologically important structure. The, the pyramids, you know, we we all have our. There are a number of theories as to what these things represent. But it's quite clear that those sort of those considerations have sort of shaped human thinking. Um, and so the, the deadlight is very a very sort of specific reference to that idea that you know we look at we're looking at light from stars that are long dead. You know, we gaze up at the night sky, you know, on a clear night away from a lot of light pollution, and we're seeing this, you know, uh, you know, on a clear night that it's it's countless countless you know entities above us and a lot of those might be extinct we might be gazing a a window into millions of years in the past something that has you know we might be seeing something that's you know reflecting long since dead solar systems and i think that was one of the considerations of the deadlight and just really exploring that idea in in a lot of detail in terms of you know what it would mean and, and how how that's interpreted and really sort of Taking that to its logical conclusion and and and, and how that manifests itself in, in you know in our thinking um, and then it, it just moves through that so nebula is is more about kind of the quest for knowledge and obviously again it, it touches on that Lovecraftian sense of things you know Lovecraft stories are always filled with kind of you know on the brink occultists reaching out you know carrying out rites to summon ancient cosmic gods and, and searching for their own truths behind that and I think it's it's kind of a statement on you know be careful what you wish for. You know, the more you sort of peel back the onion skins of of, of what you know of, of of potential truth and potential reality, you might not like the answer you find. And I think that's really what Nebula is talking about. It's talking about, on the one hand, yes, truths can lurk within the cosmos. Truth is about our own reality, and we're still learning that all the time. About you know, you know, you look at the what was it the Higgs boson they discovered a few years ago, which was, you know, which, which, I mean, I don't know the details of it. Apparently, that revolutionised theoretical physics. So we're constantly looking for truths in that cosmos. But equally, be careful about what that represents. And there might be individuals who don't support that. You know, you think about the rise of creationism. You think about the stranglehold, the stranglehold that monotheism has on vast tracts of the populace. Um, you know, some people that might not actually be supported. So there is that sort of be careful what you wish for in terms of searching for those truths. And again, it goes back to what you said about um, we're talking about labyrinthine echoes earlier. We might not be ready for it. We might not even be able to process it. It may drive us mad. It may drive us to retreat back into our shells. That also touches a bit upon the lyrics of Rendon and Onyx talk more specifically about that, and particularly about monotheism's, you know, interlinking with, you know, astrophysics and theoretical physics and, and and that sort of and that sort of that at odds challenge that's been had for centuries if not millennia between religion and science and, and how they've kind of interleave and then oppose and all that kind of stuff rendering and very much is more in that space um yeah you, and then you I, say, I, I mean sorry I, I, say? I was saying in, in render and onyx you say uh there are many places in which true wisdom hides where the unbroken fabric of reality lies in wait which doesn't necessarily sound positive. It, it it does sound like a warning, kind of what you were saying before. It's it, again, it's up to you. It's it's a pen, if you if you're if you're genuinely a truth seeker, then that will be a positive. But if you're if there's a small part of you that doesn't really want to peek behind the curtain, and there is there is, you know, some people yes, there is great fear of the unknown. But some people are quite happy with that. Some people are comfortable in ignorance. 
you know, we only have to look at the, I mean, we've got to look at the world around us at the moment. Ignorance is on the rise, you know, despite increasing communications, despite, you know, technology on our fingertips that can divulge more information to us if we wanted to than we could possibly dream of 20 years ago. Despite increases in learning, despite all that, willful ignorance is on the rise. People retreating into their, what they consider to be their own truths, i.e., you know, which, which are, you know, opinions, which are, which are dogma. You know, and uh, and this is it. So, to me, that sounds like a positive thing. But for some people, you know, I don't think I don't, I don't think some people have got the the will or the energy for it. It's kind of the paradox of you know modern technology is that you can communicate with all these people, you can learn all these things that were previously unavailable to you, but also mm. technology is how you know the anti-vaccination movement gained supporters, you know, and stuff like as an example. It's a control, and and I I hadn't quite um, anticipated how how much of a control mechanism it can be, and how much it can be co-opted. You know, it, it, it's quite frightening. You know, I I got quite excited about whole sort of web two point user generated content, and I thought, you know, maybe this is what we're going to see as a liberation. And this is probably will probably go down as Frank's shittest prophecy ever. I mean, I think it was around two thousand six, two thousand seven. I was like, right, I think ten years time, yeah, web two point we're going to see the dissemination of mainstream media and we're going to see people we're going to see a lot more independence and people it's it's gone the opposite direction you know you look at what's going on with data harvesting and, and, and human profiling you know this conversation right now is probably hitting billions of nodes across all sorts of you know mega courts you know data profiling packages and we'll probably when we finish this conversation we're probably going to get you know adverts for isaac asimov back collections in our in our facebook feeds and things like that you know we're being profiled left right and center you know, my, 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 my missus went online, which was, it? it was absolutely ridiculous. I got something in my, she was, she went and bought something. She, I think she bought some clothes from like women's clothes from like a somewhere. And late about a half an hour later, I got an advert for the same clothes in my own Facebook feed. And I, yeah, they've you know, connected They've indexed. So, so the, the manipulation of data and the, the utilization of this technology is, is being used to sell and, and control and sell ideas, sell products, sell ideologies, sell governments, and you know, and 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 to control and and it's yeah, and and it has you know some you know there there is and I just think the, the status quo is, is maintained. There will be free thinkers who will try to push against the edge of that box. But again, it goes back to what we talked about about you know that whole sort of labyrinth of echoes. Are, are these people that really think they're outside the box? They're just in another box. They're just they've just gone into a different section of the same box. You know, you know, this, you know whether it's sort of whichever conspiracy theory you choose to believe, or whatever, that they have. You know, we have no idea of knowing what the truth really is, and we're just left to sort of walk around in circles in our own sort of you know plucking out the information that we're allowed to gain access to. You know, and it's a it's a pretty it feels like a bleak scene to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it kind of is like a Plato's Cave kind of situation. You know, uh, you got to work with the best uh, information you have available to you uh, and recognize that that information might not be perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. You've, just, you've got to just, because to go down that sort of almost quasi-solipsistic rabbit hole, is you're just going to go mad. You know, if you just turn around and say, everything I'm being fed is a lie, there's no such thing as truth, forget it. And you, may, you just may as well just, you know, just, just, you know, that's it. You may as well just give up on any external interaction whatsoever. Um, I mean, I was having this, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine. He's a very he's a he's got a PhD in maths. I don't know, he's some sort of computer science character. But he's he was he was we having we'd had a few 
drinks admittedly but he was ranting on about how even science is he's like there's no truths science is just you know it's just belief and he's kind of right but what it is is it's belief backed up by the best evidence that you can find to support it and it's but and, it, and it's belief that is subject to refinement and revision so yes it is belief you know I, but it's belief that you know it has to be grounded in some sort of parameters that you set yourself you know and, and i think that i think you're right i think we just have to make the best judgment call we can on 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 the the, the, the stimulus that surrounds us and the information we're provided with yeah any any system that can refine itself is better than a dogmatic one yeah but dogma's easy eddie dogma's easy because it has all the answers for you you don't need to think or be challenged if anything comes along to contradict that dogma, you just turn around and say, "I don't believe it." I have one, and, and that's and that's the danger. And there's a lot of reinforcing um, of that that goes out, and that goes again with that the dissemination of communication and technology. Everyone's got a platform. Everyone's opinion. You know, you know, I have I have a right to my opinion. My opinion is just as valid as yours. All these kind of sort of specious arguments we see thrown out, and it's it's not true. You know, on the subject of things like, you know global pandemics you know one person's opinion is not as valid as someone else's opinion because if that someone else is a respected and esteemed you know epidemiologist you know and this mm-hmm. is this is the danger we, this is the danger we've kind of sleepwalked into you know yeah there's something to be said about that kind of you know enlightenment thinking of everybody's opinion is valid uh you're right there, there's sort of a a catch to it well, it was it was encapsulated over here, you know, in, in the build up to the sort of in the build up to the whole Brexit thing. You know, I'll, I'll, I can't remember, I don't know what role he had at the time, but Michael Gove, you know, came up with that famous statement. I think people have had enough of experts, and that really resonated. That really resonated with a chunk of the population. I put my head in my hands. Over, so I don't think people have had enough of experts because those people that apparently, and you're speaking for them, have had enough of experts, are still going to get on a train which is driven by someone who's probably an expert at driving a train. Or if they go into hospital, they're probably hoping to get treated by someone who is an expert on heart disease, not just some bloke who's read about it in the mirror and thinks he's going to have a go. <laughs> or some bloke who says, oh, it looks easy to me because I saw someone talking about it on Facebook. I'll give, I'll give it a go. So, it, But it's a kind of double thing. It's like, And people will say that. Yeah, I've had enough of experts. No, what I've had enough is educated people disagreeing with their opinion. And it makes them feel foolish. So what that person was doing was, again, using the language of propaganda and the right was appealing so that emotive response in order to gain votes by saying people have had enough of experts. And we go, yeah, I have. And again, what well, they, they haven't had enough of experts. They've had enough of educated people disagreeing with their opinion on something because it makes them feel uncomfortable because it challenges their dogmatic view of something. But they haven't had enough of experts. No one's had enough of experts. If people had enough of experts, they'd be saying, you know, before they get on a plane, so actually my mate Barry thinks he's quite good at flying planes. Give him a go. I'm fine with that because I've had enough of experts. You're an expert pilot. I've had enough of you. Get out of the way and let my mate have a go. So, um, but that's, you know, this is it. But that's, that's the, the shaping. It's it's language is, and this is where what we come it comes down to. It's technology is controlling l- language. You know, it, it goes back to Wittgenstein. I don't know if you know the philosopher Wittgenstein, but his theory is very much that language shapes thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, because we think in language. So and you, and you start hearing about. I hear a lot of the time, and it's probably a bit of a hot potato in black metal circles. But you start hearing about anti-racists. And, he's, and I said, like, well, hang on a minute, when did, when did things get polarized into racists and, and anti-racists? Surely everyone's an anti-racist unless they're racist. Or are there people sitting on the fence? 
you know, there's certain things, you know, and this is the danger is you start getting that language. And someone's like, oh, oh he's an anti-racist. He says, well, what are you? Well, I'm not racist. Well, you must be anti Well, I'm not going to take sides here. Well, what do you mean you're not taking sides? Where, where, where does this end up? You know, you know, are you, are you, are you, are you pro anti-murder? Yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but this is the danger of language. That's, that's crept in. That's crept into normalcy, Nazis and anti-Nazis, you know? Well, you're an anti-Nazi, surely, unless you're a Nazi. Oh no, no, we can't take we can't take sides. You know, so, well, it's not a question of sides, you know. The Nazis view everyone who isn't them as the enemy, so you know they're not going to put up with fence sitters, you know. So I think it's dangerous, and I think again these are all examples of how language disseminated through unbelievably available technology, which is cauterizing people's attention spans, is being used to sort of to sort of control, manipulate sell whatever it is whatever ultimately maintain the hegemony i I was thinking about uh Wittgenstein is kind of an off-screen character in uh this david foster wallace novel um it's his first one I'm, i'm blanking on the name right now but basically one of the characters becomes so obsessed with uh the concept you were talking about where basically like language forms you know all all the meaning or whatever uh that basically ruins their life um yeah but yeah yeah it's kind of a humorous take on it but <laughs> but we have to be careful with it because i think there's there really is something for that and there is something about that and i think that's where that's where that's how propaganda works it, it works on the concept of controlling language you know it's like 1984 where they they, they deliberately reduce people's vocabulary so rather than having excellent and splendid and you know incredible everything is just it's it's good plus good or double plus good you restrict people's language you restrict their ability to think you restrict the avenues they can go down with with their, with their thought processes and it's it's and it's the same here you know you tell people they've had enough of experts what they do is they react violently to people delivering them an educated view on something it becomes a lie you know you talk you endlessly talk about racists and anti-racists you so people subconsciously start to think there are two valid viewpoints in an argument there you know, okay. Well, let's, you know, we've heard we've heard the anti-racist talk. What do the racists think? It's like, what is this? You know, when when and 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 it's it's that normalisation. And if this sounds makes me sound like some sort of some sort of lefty woke git, then I'm, I'm all for it. But we we tipped around this stuff in the black metal scene quite a lot as well. We tipped around it. We have this sort of straw man idea of yeah, anti-fascist, anti-for the trash, shut down everything, blah blah blah. Well, you know, you might make. Maybe they're going to go and pick it a few Sturmer gigs and things like that. You know, if these if these big tough fascists are so hard and they're so welded to their ideologies, and why don't they fight back rather than just moaning about it on Facebook, whinging about venues, you know, cutting their gigs? You know, they, you know, these guys whinge about snowflakes all the fucking time. They hear about ah lefty snowflakes. They're the biggest. You know, all these muscly fucking racist black metalists are the biggest snowflakes in the world. Oh, they closed their gig, put it on somewhere else. No, it's not fair. Censorship. Censorship. Say people who adhere to the philosophies of organizations that burn books. Come on. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a that's a uh, good way to think about that. I mean, if, 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 the, if the fascists seize power, if these guys, if the, 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 if the ideologies these guys so slavishly pertain to worship seize power, first thing they're going to put the kibosh on is it's underground black metal. It'll be state approved marching music. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's such, and, and it's just all about machismo. It's all about trying to align with the tough guys. Oh, you know, they're tough, aren't they? They wear, you know, the Nazis used to wear cool looking clothes and looked hard. So I want to be in that gang. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's all pretty sad, to be honest. Yeah, it's a hard thing. Um, 
the the other uh guest i've had on the show so far uh was uh that was in a black metal band was uh simon Barr from uh dawn raid and they were pretty yeah. explicitly anti-fascist black metal band and it was interesting hearing his uh you know he was talking about playing gigs with sort of you know semi-fascist far-right bands and stuff like that and it's kind of crazy to think about I mean, you've got a uh, problem is it's, it's absolutely endemic. It's all for because everyone's trying to out tough. You know, they're, they're still, I thought people had grown off of it, but a lot of people in black metal bands are still trying to out tough everyone else. So, you know, you go backstage and people are throwing around the N word like you wouldn't believe and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh, come on. Well, you know, and who's, you know, and I don't, I don't, one second, people do these people are genuinely racist, but they're trying to fit into a cool club. And, and, and yeah, I, I, I know Dorm Road and they, they get a huge amount of program over here because they are openly left wing and they make you know they're, they're pretty they make quite an open stance about that and they've attracted some ire over here because of that from you know people who think oh you're supporting antifa trying to shut down our gigs and i was like well that's not that's firstly antifa isn't some sort of you know government agency or something it's, it's just a network of sort of activists and i'm sure that in some places it's more active than it is but i've, I've never encountered it here we, we you know i've played on some bills with some potentially quite suspect bands we, we never had a hint of trouble had people see highly in the audience which is that's nice, you know, but it's like, and this is it. And I, I think this sort of straw man idea of the left trying to chip away at the ideals of free speech is a load of bollocks, personally. I think it's just there. Yeah, you get gigs do get cancelled. But if you're going to do interviews where you're sort of open, or you're going to, you, if you're going to release albums with swastikas on, or you're going to do interviews where you blabber on about racism and fascism, or you release song titles that talk about exterminating Jews, do not be surprised if someone sh- sh- shots you to a, to a gig promoter or to a venue, and that venue goes, uh, yeah, we're not going to have that here, thanks. It's not deplatforming. It's a venue making a commercial decision. I hear a lot of hysteria about it. Oh, it's deplatforming. It's censorship. It's not censorship. Censorship is a state telling you you can't do something. A venue owner going, I don't want a racist band on my stage. I'm going to make a commercial decision not to put that gig on. It's a commercial. It's a business decision. You are happy to take your your art and your message and play at a venue that will accept that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, it's It frustrates me because... I think people get very emotive on this subject where you, you and, and, and lose sight of the actual goal, which is fascism and Nazism are not your friend. and We shouldn't be defending it just because people in bands that we quite like happen to align with that thinking. You know, you know, a lot of them are probably just slightly hopelessly, misgu- hopelessly misguided. But, you know, it, it, but you, you shouldn't start. It's a bit of a slippery slope to start sort of making apologies because you've got some vinyl, a cool band, you into that stuff, you know? Well, Frank, it's been really good talking to you today. I appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. I'm sorry if I really ranted on a bit. It. No, no. I, 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 I love this kind of, you know, uh, getting into the, the, the scene and the kind of how, you know, music is impacted by real world issues. Super interesting. Um, no, cool. And thanks for the interview. It's, it's just nice. It's nice to talk to someone. I've been on lockdown for four weeks. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. This has been my my contact with the outside world right now. So well, I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for thanks for giving us the airtime. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome, Frank. Thanks for uh, making such great music. Thanks for spending some time with us today, and I will talk to you later. No props. Cheers for that. Take care. Yeah. Cheers. This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs> <laughs>